Okay, the third question in this little series of road trip questions comes from Leslie in Washington State, and she wrote, how do you like to spend all of the time you have in your vehicle as you travel along on your road trips? Do we really want to answer this question? It's like it's like Festivus in our car. There's the airing of grievances. There's no feats of strength. But Actually, to be honest, I drive and then, Karen, you put your sunglasses on and sleep. And you think that because you have sunglasses on, I don't know you're sleeping. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. This is our monthly mailbag episode where we answer questions from listeners about the national parks and other travel-related topics. Today, we're talking about one of our favorite large mammals, the beloved moose, specifically where you have a good chance of seeing them throughout the national parks, but also some suggestions about what to do if you have a close encounter with one. We'll also answer a listener's question about the best city to fly into when visiting Grand Canyon National Park. And we'll discuss some of the Canadian national parks that are on our list of places to see. Plus a trio of great road trip questions. All this and more coming up next on Mailbag. All right, before we dive into our mailbag today, we wanted to talk about a couple of newsworthy things. Uh, And the first one is that Glacier National Park just announced their new day-use reservation system for 2024. And once again, it's changed from last year to make things confusing for people. It's just like the fourth (laughs) different reservation system in a row? Yes, I think literally it has changed every single year. So it's really important for people who are going to Glacier next summer in 2024 to know about these new uh, reservations. Well, maybe they're making it better. Well, it is slightly less complicated because they have gone from requiring four different reservations for four different areas down to three. There you go. Yeah. So let's talk about that. For the west side of going to the Sun Road and the North Fork area, you're going to need a day-use reservation from May 24th through September 8th. That's a vehicle reservation, so one per car, and that's going to be from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Yeah, and also the Many Glacier area has its own reservation system, and it starts July 1st, also runs through September 8th. And you'll need a reservation to go back there. That's also from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. So what's different this year from last year? The difference is that you don't need a day-use reservation for the two medicine area. So they took that one off of the list. Just go back there anytime you want. (laughs) Apparently Many times as you want, as often as you would like. (laughs) Now, the reason we're talking about this now is because they're going to go up for grabs fairly soon. 
A portion of the vehicle reservations will be available 120 days or approximately four months in advance. And this will start on January 25th, 2024 at 8 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. It will run on a daily rolling basis. So for folks going in May, at the end of May, you're going to need to get on, you know, in January, at the end of January and get your day use reservations. Good luck with getting a reservation. Right. Now, the good news is this is a same as it has been in past years. If you have other types of reservations within the park, so let's say you're staying at one of the lodges or campgrounds, or you have a boat tour or a horseback ride tour, those will get you into that specific reservation area. You do not need to then get a day use reservation that will get you in. But again, it's only into the area where your hotel is or where your boat tour is and so on. You think people are gaming the system like they're scheduling boat tours and then not going because they just want to be able to drive into the park? Yes, they're absolutely doing that. And the other thing they're doing, and there there have been a ton of complaints about this, a lot of people who either can't get the day use reservations or they don't know about it and they show up at the park, they simply enter the park before 6 a.m. So they go at 5 or 5.30 or whatever. And the complaints are that all of these people who are lining up at 6 a.m. to get into the park and they have their reservation, by the time they get to the parking areas, especially Logan Pass, it's already full. So, well, that's, but that's the system. That is the system. I, I don't know. I, I think if you really want a parking spot, go in at 5 a.m. I think you have to. And look, I get it. There's not much the park can do about that because the park is open 24 hours a day and they're not going to have, they're not going to, you know, pay rangers to staff those entrance booths all night long. I mean, that no, would that no, would be not. unreasonable. <laughs> that would be unreasonable, right? <laughs> right. So that's the system. And, and all joking aside, this is the fourth year that they've changed it. I mean, they're trying their best to make it fair and easy and as simple as they can. So like, I I don't know that they have really any other choice. It wouldn't be good to just make it a free for all. Well, exactly. And I think for all the people who I see on social media complaining about these reservation systems, the bottom line is, this is protecting the park. Yes, it's aggravating for visitors. Of course it is. But you have to think about the park, the wildlife. You just can't have more than a certain amount of people coming in on any given day. Right. Driving the going to the sun road in bumper to bumper traffic, literally going two miles an hour. That's not fun for anybody. True. And it's not safe. So this is what they have to do. Yes, exactly. So just note for all of you who are planning your summer trips, take a look at this. Also, of course, you know, Rocky Mountain National Park is going to have their day use reservations in effect again. Arches is going to also. And we are still waiting to see if Mount Rainier is going to implement a day use reservation system. They were taking feedback this past summer, uh, and we have not heard anything about that just yet. So we'll keep you up to date on breaking news. That's right. But we have other breaking news, Karen. Well, we do. And this is kind of a big deal for any of you who are visiting Grand Canyon National Park between now and the middle of April. So that would be all of you folks who are going for Christmas, winter break, spring break. Uh, They are closing Bright Angel Trail. They're closing it for four and a half months from December 1st, 2023 through April 14th, 2024. 
They're closing the trail to repair the water pipeline that runs along that trail. And this is something also that is really needed because that pipeline breaks from time to time and they really need to just close the trail, do the repairs the way they need to so it doesn't keep happening. Uh, But you can hike a half a mile down the Bright Angel Trail and then hike back up. And for a lot of people, that's all they're going to hike anyway. That's true. So if you want to see what the Bright Angel Trail looks like and get some views down into the canyon, that's absolutely right. They're they keeping the first half mile open during all this construction. And, you know, we have talked in other podcast episodes about some other great trails in the park. Um, one we wanted to mention briefly is the South Kaibab Trail also takes you down from the rim to the Colorado River. And that's a fantastic trail, and especially just that short hike to Ooh-Ah Point. It's about two miles round trip. And, you know, that is a gorgeous viewpoint. It's got the little Ooh-Ah sign. So, yeah, that's a great alternative to hiking a couple miles down Bright Angel. Uh, Just note, in the winter, it can be icy, uh, and it can also be snowy. So you might want to check with a ranger before you take the shuttle over to the South Kaibab Trailhead. Yeah, they're trying to do these repairs during the winter so they can get it all finished before the busy season of rim-to-rim hiking starts. So good luck with your repairs, Grand Canyon National Park. That's right. Okay, Karen, do we have any questions in the mailbag? Any letters there? Do you, Matt, can you we dig have, through that bag? We have some of the best questions we've ever had. Okay, okay, great. Let's go. Okay, the first one comes from Darlene in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. She wrote... My goal in 2024 is to see a moose, not lose weight, not stop drinking. I, I love Darlene already. I know this kind of sounds like <laughs> your New Year's resolution <laughs> it does. list. It does. So Darlene is asking, in which national park do you think I would most likely come across a moose? Such a good question. It is a good question. We don't recommend drinking when you're looking for the moose. <laughs> because it could be a little dangerous uh, once you actually find the moose. But uh, we we appreciate the detail of your question. So seeing a moose, Karen, how are we going to see a moose? Well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about moose because everyone loves moose. They want to see moose. We totally get it. It's such an kind of an unusual looking creature. So let's talk about moose for a second wait 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 a second so you are the history expert (laughs) i've i've claimed geology are you gonna start taking the animal planet category as well matt i i have absolutely no idea what you're talking about Let's talk about moose. Where'd you get that music, Karen? (laughs) So moose are the largest member of the deer family. They're in the deer family. Adult moose, they're huge. So they stand between four and a half feet and seven feet tall at the shoulder, depending on the sex. On, on, <laughs> depending on when they're having sex or Matt, gender. D- gender would be a better word there. <laughs> depending on gender. <laughs> All right. The average shoulder height of a wild moose is six feet, which is a foot taller than the next largest deer species, which would be elk. 
So these are some big animals, but let me tell you how much they weigh. On average, the adult male moose, this would be a bull older than five and a half years, weighs about 1,100 pounds, while the adult female moose, cows, they're called cows, who are older than three and a half years, weigh about 830 pounds. How much does a five and a half year old cow weigh? I don't know that. (laughs) If you're going to claim to be the animal expert, you're going to need to know these details. Okay, but I can tell you that moose are able to store over 100 pounds of food in their stomachs. (laughs) They are now my favorite animal. (laughs) I would like to be able to store over 100 pounds of food in my stomach. Now, a wild moose will live on average for 8 to 12 years. And I was kind of surprised by that. I would have thought they would have lived longer than that. Well, it depends where they live, right? I'm not sure that the moose we saw in the Fred Meyer parking lot in Anchorage is going to make it that long. Probably not. (laughs) All right. So one thing people associate with moose are their huge antlers, which are only on the male moose. And during the winter season, moose shed their antlers before regrowing them again in the spring. I didn't know this, Matt, but the shedding process is also called Casting. Did you know that? No. Casting. No. Um, didn't know it. Yeah. And the reason that the moose shed their antlers is to conserve energy. So I guess when they when you see these moose with these huge bullwinkle antlers, those antlers can weigh up to 60 pounds. And it's a huge burden on them in the winter while they're trying to forage for food and survive in these harsh northern uh, winter climates. What do they use their antlers for, Karen? Well, people think that their antlers are used as weapons, but they're mostly a sign of sexual prowess. I guess when vying for a female, a moose with smaller antlers will probably lose out over a male with a larger rack. And not only that, but a female might also perceive a male with huge antlers to be more physically fit and thus opt to mate with <laughs> Are you sure you're talking about moose? (laughs) Definitely talking about moose here. (laughs) Remember in Denali when we saw the two sets of moose antlers locked together at the visitor center? That was pretty cool. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I guess about 20 years ago, some hikers stumbled across these two huge moose skulls with their racks entwined together. Apparently, they were fighting and then the racks got stuck together and then the moose both died right there. And then... In 2007, the Park Service airlifted these skulls out using a sling and a helicopter, and they took them to the Eielson Visitor Center, that's way back on the park road, where they're on display now. So that's pretty cool if you're back there to see those antlers. Yeah, it's actually really chilling to imagine what must have happened to those poor moose once they locked antlers and couldn't get them unstuck. But in answer to Darlene's specific question, let's talk about some national parks where you could see moose. Well, there is one park in particular, Grand Teton National Park, where I'm sure we've seen a moose every time we've been in that park. There's several places you can see them at Oxbow Bend, Willow Flats. Uh, the Snake River between Moran and Moose. Which uh, is, Moose is a little community. Yeah, <laughs> not, not between Moran and the next and, Moose. Right. Yeah. Uh, and where we have seen a Moose every single time we've hiked this area, the west shore of Jenny Lake near Cascade Canyon. We have seen a Moose every time, and most of the times there's also been a, a bonus baby Moose there, too. Bonus baby. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think Grand Teton would be the number one place for you to see a moose. In the lower 48. Yes, in the lower 48. Also, I would say this would be the place to see one with the least amount of effort. You don't really have to hike to see a moose in Grand Teton. I'm always surprised, even though we see one every time we hike up that Cascade Canyon Trail, uh, we see one. And that Oxbow Bend where 7,000 photographers gather in the early morning to watch the sunrise, we have been there, not during sunrise, but I've seen so many photos of moose standing there right in the water or near the water. So that's a great spot to check out during the day. I don't imagine they're there during sunrise with all those people, but I certainly have seen a lot of photos of moose there. Yeah, so Grand Teton National Mm -hmm. Park is a great place. Also, Glacier National Park, especially the many glacier area. So you've got Cracker Lake if you hike back there. Iceberg Lake, we saw moose when we hiked to Iceberg Lake. Fisher Cap Lake. Uh, And also in the two Medicine Lake area. So there's a lot of moose on the east side of the park. I'm sure they're on the west side also, but uh, on the east side, we have seen quite a few moose. We have. And those have always been during hikes. I think we talked about fairly recently when we hiked to Cracker Lake, how we were surprised by a moose along the trail. He was literally two feet Um, standing right above us in some brush. And we're going to talk in a minute about what to do if you see a moose, but we will continue this list. Um, Next up, we have Rocky Mountain National Park. There are a lot of moose in that park. Your chances to see them are the best on the west side of the park because it's a little more wet over there. Yeah, and there's generally fewer people, mm-hmm, so right. they're probably not getting scared off as, as much. Another park, Isle Royal National Park, uh, they have a lot of moose. Of course, it's an island in the middle of Lake Superior. It's a little harder to get to, uh, but at the Hidden Lake area by Tobin Harbor is where people say you can see moose. Yes, we never saw a moose when we were on Isle Royal, and we did hike quite a bit, so we were a little bit disappointed in that, but... They are there. Okay, so let's talk about two parks in Alaska. Denali has moose. They hang out a lot between the entrance to the park road and Savage River, which would be mile one to mile 15 of that Denali Park Road. That's in the summertime. And I guess they hang out between mile nine and 13 um, in the fall, and those would be the bull moose. So that would be cool to see. Also in Alaska, there is Glacier Bay National Park. Uh, There's a ton of moose in Glacier Bay. Of course, the park, the feature of the park is the bay itself and the boat tours, and that's fantastic. But the park also has a lot of heavily treed land, Mm -hmm. and there are moose everywhere. Yes. We ran into one on our bike ride down the park road into the little town of Gustavus, and he was huge. Bull moose was standing on the road. We were afraid to bike ride by him because, you know, he was 27 feet tall. And then we also saw some mama moose and their offspring by the lodge. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, mama had a collar on. Yes. Yeah, back in 2003, researchers from the Alaska Department of Fish and Game began studying the moose living in and around the Gustavus area. And they attached GPS-linked radio collars to cow moose to see where they were migrating to. And I guess 
there were times when the moose would just simply disappear. Yeah, and then suddenly reappear again a season later. So they were trying to figure out where these moose were going, and I guess they have figured out. And and the answer is they're going a lot of different places. Yeah, yeah. so you can uh, see moose there. Also in Yellowstone National Park, now they're not a ton of moose there, but there are about 200, they think. They hang out by Hayden Valley. The fishing bridge, the Yellowstone Lake area, West Thumb. Yeah, we have never seen a moose in Yellowstone. I was reading that they fall prey to the wolves and the grizzly bears in Yellowstone. That's why their numbers are so low. If you are visiting that area, Grand Teton is definitely a better bet than Yellowstone to see a moose. We should also mention that as fun as it is to see a moose, they're pretty dangerous. Did you know that they are the most dangerous animals in America's national parks? No, I didn't know that. But I guess more people have been injured by moose than bears. Yes, especially during the spring, which is calving season, and in the fall during mating season, moose can be particularly dangerous. So we're going to talk about a couple of rules, Darlene, for you and all other visitors to follow when you're in the parks. Uh, Number one is, this is just common sense, right? If you've spotted a moose from a distance, keep your distance. Do not approach the animal. That's right. Now, if the moose hasn't noticed you yet, don't try to get its attention. Just be (laughs) quiet, back away, try to get as far away from it as you can, especially if you're on a hiking trail, just move away. Now, if the moose has noticed you, on the other hand, you have to convince the moose that you're not a threat. So how do you do that, Karen? Well, you speak in a nice, quiet voice. You talk slowly. You back away slowly. Hey, moose. Hey, buddy. (laughs) Call it buddy. Yes. Don't act aggressively is what you're saying. That's right. And third, watch for signs indicating that the moose is agitated. So the most obvious signs are laid back ears and upright hackles. Don't know what a hackle is. Still don't know what a hackle is. So that doesn't help me at all. I know. And I love this. If the moose is staring at you intently, that may also be a sign that you're too close and you are considered a threat. You don't want the moose to stare at you. Intently. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. No idea what that would look like. Okay, Darlene. So what should you do if you think a moose is about to charge you? All right. So if a moose does try to charge you or acts like it's going to, most moose charges, I guess, are bluffs. Mm -hmm. Like they, they don't want to attack you any more than you want to be attacked. So backing away, try to put distance between you and the intensely staring moose. Right. When you talk about a bluff charge, and we, we have talked about this with brown bears and grizzly bears, one of the scary things about a bluff charge is that you don't actually know it's going to be a bluff charge until the animal suddenly veers off at the very end. I know. There's a lot of people that are giving advice about large animals charging you, and it's just a bluff. But like, how do you know? Well, you don't. That's the problem. You You hope, you hope, you hope. (laughs) You have to just stick around and see what happens. Right. Okay, but here's some good news. And it's important to note that 
unlike with bears and mountain lions, it's totally okay to run from a moose. Because moose are herbivores, if you run away from them, it won't trigger a predatory chase response. So if a moose charges you, it's always defensive, and it's very unlikely that they're going to chase you down the trail. So once you're out of their immediate vicinity, hopefully they're going to go back to whatever it was they were doing. Run as fast as you can. Yes. However, there is one practical tip, which is get behind a tree or a large object like mm. a car or something like that, if, if that's available. From a physical standpoint, it's hard to attack you if you're behind a tree. They just want you to get away from them. So yes, yeah, step behind a tree, any large object. Um, the last thing we wanted to mention is if you should get knocked down by an aggressive moose, um, they suggest that you curl up in a ball and remain motionless. So basically, play dead, protect your head and your neck with your arms, and don't fight back. Don't fight back. Yeah. You Does know, that have to be said? I guess so. You almost need you almost need like crib notes, right? Because with a mountain lion, you're supposed to act aggressive and, and wave your arms and yell. And, and with a bear, you're not supposed to run. And so with every wild animal, you're supposed to have a different response. Yeah, well, you're the animal expert. So maybe <laughs> you can come up with little plastic cards that people could keep in their backpack and they see an animal. Hold on just a minute. Let me get that card out. Yes. What do I do now? Yeah. (laughs) All right. So, Darlene, we sure hope you get to see a moose. You know, we have moose here in Washington State, but we've actually never seen one. I think they live primarily in the eastern side of the state. Okay, so those are some tips, Darlene, as to where you might be able to find one. Yes, good luck. And please send us a picture of your moose if you find one. This episode is sponsored in part by Rumpel, producing a full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. Are you looking for gift ideas for someone special in your life? Someone who loves the national parks and could use a puffy blanket to stay cozy and warm on all their adventures? Well, yes, actually. I've been looking for gift ideas that you could get me, and I saw some beautiful new designs on the Rumpel website. I was talking to our listeners, and besides, we already own two Rumpel blankets. Well, sure, but just like the ones we already have, these new designs are made with recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag. And they pair durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor resistant. That's great. So our listeners can shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumple.com forward slash Bob and Sue. And they can use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off their first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. All right, Karen, what other questions do we have in the mailbag? Okay, this next one comes from Heather in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and she wrote, We are taking our family to Grand Canyon National Park for spring break in April. Would you suggest that we fly into Las Vegas or Phoenix? Great question. You know, we tell people often to fly into Vegas just because there are a lot of flight options and the prices uh, for tickets are usually uh, less but not this time. Las Vegas, it's about a four-hour drive to the Grand Canyon. It's not 
particularly scenic. There's not a whole lot to do. It's boring. Let's just be honest. It's a very boring drive. Yeah, but from Phoenix, it's only about a three and a half hour uh, drive. It's much prettier. There's also stuff along the way that you could do. You could stop in Sedona, stop at Flagstaff. There are a couple of National Park Service sites like Tuzigoot and Walnut Canyon that are in and around that you could also visit. So I think Phoenix is your best bet. Absolutely. Unless for some reason it was a lot, lot cheaper to fly into Vegas and rent a car. You know, if if cost is a significant factor, then, you know, you might want to choose that. But as far as scenery and things to do, 100% we would say Phoenix. We have traveled with friends before to the Grand Canyon and they've flown in and out of Flagstaff. So that is another option, but generally you're going to have to take a connector flight. Right, and that's going to probably add to the price. So one suggestion we have, though, when you arrive at the Phoenix airport, you will be taking Highway 17 North up through Flagstaff up to the Grand Canyon, but definitely get off on Highway 179 and travel through Sedona because Sedona is absolutely beautiful. The landscape is unlike any other, and it's worth the detour just to drive through it. There will be a little bit of traffic in Sedona. It's a pretty crowded place, but I think it's worth the drive just to see the scenery. It's also a great place that you could stop for lunch. I mean, Sedona has a ton of great restaurants, so if you need a stop anyway, that would be a great place to do it. Right. And then from Sedona, you can take Highway 89A up to Flagstaff. So this parallels Highway 17 if you look at the map, but it's absolutely beautiful drive. I mean, one of the prettiest drives we've ever done. And it's only about Flagstaff from Sedona is only about 30 miles to the north. If you wanted to spend some time in Sedona or Flagstaff, lodging in Sedona, especially when you're going during spring break, can be really expensive. And a cheaper alternative is to stay in Flagstaff. And Flagstaff's a a nice little town also. Great little downtown, has outdoor stores, has good restaurants. There's some great breweries in Flagstaff. It's the home to Northern Arizona University, which is a really pretty big college. So there's a lot of students there, which means there's a lot of infrastructure in town to accommodate you know, a, a large university. So you, you've got things to do there. And like we said, if you have extra time, there are a few National Park Service sites in and around Flagstaff that you might want to check out. Like we said, Walnut Canyon, that's an interesting one. Wapatki's not too far. Montezuma's Castle's over, kind of close to Sedona. Yeah, there's a lot of great outdoor things to do if you want to add to your trip. And maybe you don't. Maybe you, you want to spend the entire time in the Grand Canyon. But you might as well take the scenic route. That's right. All right. Hope you guys have a really fun spring break. Okay, Karen, what else do we have in the mailbag? Okay, this question is from Steve, and he wrote, I know that Karen has talked about seeing all the national monuments as your next big project, but I wonder if you've considered visiting all of the national parks in Canada. Wouldn't that be awesome to have visited every national park in the U.S. and Canada? I've only been to three myself, but they are all top-notch. What do you say? Yes or no, and why? Well, I think that's an interesting thing to consider. I don't know if we're going to get to that point where we have enough time to go to all the Canadian national parks. Certainly, we'd like to visit more than we already 
visited. It would be a fantastic goal to have. Uh, So there are 37 national parks in Canada and 10 national park reserves. And a national park reserve is an area that's managed like a national park, but um, it's subject to one or more indigenous land claims. So indigenous people continue to use the land for their traditional hunting, fishing, and trapping. But what I wanted to say is that because this is the Northern Territory, the best time to visit these parks, if you want to do any hiking or camping or boating, is going to be in the summer. And that is a very ambitious undertaking if you are only considering the summer months to visit, you know, what are we talking about, 47 huge (laughs) swaths of land. It would take a while. Yes. It It would would take a while to get to all of those. Right. And currently we have the Swiss Alps and the Dolomites on our list, hopefully for the end of next summer. So we have some other places we want to see. So the answer to your question is probably not. It's probably not going to happen that we're going to visit all. But there are a couple that I um, that I want to see. And let's just chat about that for a second. Yeah, well, we've already been to Waterton, which is adjacent to Glacier National Park. And we've been to Banff. So we've done those two. I'd uh, love to go back to Banff. Uh, Jasper's not too far from Banff, and that's extremely popular. It's also crowded, uh, but we want to go to Jasper. Uh, also, Yoho, Kootenay, and Revelstoke, uh, those are not too far from us. They're kind of in the same area, so right. we'd, we'd like to see those. Yes, we could do all of those on one big trip, and and those are, those are jewels in their national park system. A couple of others that I just wanted to mention. You know, Matt, I don't even know if I told you this yet, but on my list for early spring 2024 is Pacific Rim National Park, and that's on the island of Vancouver, kind of on the west side. Um, And the thing about this one is it's a coastal park. So that means you can visit it year round, right? It has temperate rainforests and rugged beaches. Um, So this doesn't have to be a summer visit as long as you bring your raincoat. Yeah. Are you just trying to convince me right here (laughs) while we're recording a podcast? I'm hearing this for the first time. Yes. They have some of the oldest growth forests in the world there in this particular park. And, you know, it's going to be Similar to um, Olympic National Park, if you go in the spring, you know, it's likely to be rainy and moody, but we kind of like that. um... Rainy and moody. (laughs) We like the moody parks. (laughs) We have a goal to visit all the moody parks in the world. We have a good head start on that one. All right. Well, Um, we'll consider that one. Okay. And another one, and you're going to like this one, Matt, Kluani National Park is adjacent to Wrangell St. Elias. So it sits, you know, to the east of Wrangell and it's in the uh, southwestern Yukon Territory. And just like um, just like Wrangell, it's huge. 24 million acres of mountains and glaciers and spectacular scenery. But here's the thing. We wouldn't have to take a small plane to get there. We could drive. Yes, all the way from Seattle. I would do that. I know. It's only 1,700 miles. So how long would that take us? 1,700 miles. Mm -hmm. Hmm, That would take us, I don't know, 30 hours? Depends if we're just going to go cannonball. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so once we would get up there, the Alaska Highway runs right along the park's eastern edge. So we wouldn't have to take a small plane to get into the park. Now, there's two other options if we don't want to drive the 1,700 miles. We can fly into Whitehorse. Um, there are commercial flights from here to Whitehorse. And so that's an option. And then, you know, it's not a very far drive from there. Or here's what you're going to want to do. We could take the Alaska Marine Highway Ferry System up to either Haines, Alaska, or Skagway, which we've done, and drive from there. So from Skagway, it's less than five hours. Yeah, I like that idea. Take the car up to Skagway, uh-huh. get off, and then drive back home. Yes. Yeah, I, I could see doing that. Yeah. yeah, and then you're cutting off a lot of driving. Yeah, plus you get the experience of doing the Alaska Marine Highway, so you have a few days of going through the inside passage. I love that. Fairy ride. Incredibly beautiful. So that's an option. Now, one park that I was looking at that we probably will not do, and this is all the way on the far, far eastern side and north, northern side of Canada. It is called, let me see if I can say this right, Ayuitek National Park. You have know. you ever heard of it? No, no I haven't. I so. haven't heard of any of this stuff before, okay. before right so, now. Yeah, so this is extremely remote. Last year, they had 256 visitors to the park. So it's located within the Arctic Circle on the Cumberland Peninsula of Baffin Island. Um, And it's one of Canada's wildest national parks. So apparently you have to fly to the remote village of Akaluit, which is in the Nunavut territory of Canada before taking another plane to one of two Inuit villages where then adventure outfitters guide you by boat or snowmobile through the sky-high fjords to get into the park. So extremely remote, you know, small planes, snowmobiles, that kind of thing. But I guess it is incredibly beautiful. There are granite peaks and glaciated valleys, Arctic wildlife, including, and this is something I would actually like to see, there are polar bears up there. Polar bears. Yeah, that's in my wish bucket as well. So anyway, you know, Steve, it's such a great question because when you look at the national parks in Canada, just like our national parks, they are diverse and incredible and they protect, you know, some of the most beautiful lands up in Canada. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we will go to all of those. (laughs) I don't know. We we don't know what we're doing next week. Right. It is something to think about. And we certainly do want to add to our list of two. We had some trips planned during the um, couple of COVID summers where they uh, shut down the border between the US and Canada. So we did have some trips that were canceled. And we just need to bring those back to the top of the list. Yeah. Let those float to the top of the bucket. Right. All right, Steve, thank you for your great question. All right, Karen, I think I see a couple more envelopes in the bag. Could you dig those out? Yes. You know, coming up, we have three kind of quick questions, and they all involve road trip life. All right. So what's our first one? Okay. The first one comes from Joan in Cedarburg, Wisconsin, and she wrote... Dear Matt and Karen, we just returned from a 12-day road trip through the Dakotas following lots of your suggestions. Your guidance made the trip one of our best. Thank you, Joan. My question is this. Along with the driving, we did lots of hiking too. But on about the fifth day, neither one of us wanted to do much of anything. Do you schedule in a light day when you take your long trips? Or is this something that one gets used to as they travel more? We are just curious. Well, I... 
I certainly understand that. You know, you do these trips, you want to get in as many activities as you can, you want to see things. Uh, that happens to us also. Sometimes our problem is we just schedule too much driving each day and then we don't have time to, to do the hikes. But a lot of times we, uh, we have a general itinerary. But if we get into it and we're just beat, yeah, well, sometimes we'll, we'll have an easy day. And I do think that's important to build in because, I mean, traveling itself is exhausting, right? And so if you're hiking every day, you know, you do need some downtime. But yeah, our issue, like like you said, Matt, is that we don't stay in one place very long. So we do have drives between different parks that, you know, will take a couple of hours. And so we do try to schedule, you know, let's say we're driving three hours between a couple of parks, you know, maybe we'll do that in the morning, we'll have lunch, and then we'll do a shorter hike in the afternoon. So yeah, we do try to break it up. If you're traveling with other people, especially like a family, you can, you know, wear out your crew pretty quick. And then it, then that's not a lot of fun for people. This past summer in August, Matt and I went up to the Mount Baker area here in Washington State, which is absolutely beautiful. And we spent a night up there and we did two really long, difficult hikes back to back in two days. And then we came back here and friends of ours asked us to go immediately to Mount Rainier and do a very difficult hike. So we hiked three really uh, pretty long, hard hikes in three days. And and after that, we expected like we were going to lose all this weight. And we were like, oh, we're so healthy. And <laughs> Doesn't work that way. It really doesn't work that way, especially when you have pizza and beer after every hike. <laughs> but yeah, we were we were feeling it after those three days for sure. Yeah. So the answer to your question is yeah. I think it is a good idea to schedule lighter activity days when you're on a trip of that length. Absolutely. All right. Thanks for the question, Joan. Next up, this one is from Jill in Uray, Colorado. Oh, one of our favorite towns. She wrote, we absolutely love your books and podcast. I read all four books out loud to my husband over the course of two years of happy hours. <laughs> I hope that was like towards the end of the happy hour. <laughs> all right, Jill, you're our new best friend. We're going to come and stay with you in Uray, Colorado. So I hope you have a spare bedroom. All right. Her question is, we are trying to do as many road trips as possible to go to the national parks now that we are retired, and we pack lunches to take along the way, which seems like a good idea. We recently did the Carlsbad Caverns, Guadalupe Mountains, Big Bend, White Sands Loop, and we had trouble finding a good place to stop. Twirling around looking for a park or roadside rest area with a shady table is frustrating. How do you decide where to stop and stretch and eat lunch? That's a good question. <laughs> it's a really good question. Unfortunately, our answer is this. We usually eat in our car, and Matt drives with his knees while eating a foot-long Subway sandwich from a gas station Subway. Yeah, but I've, I've changed my technique. I now take just half of the sandwich, and I put one half on the console, and then I only eat one six-inch section at a time because it gives me an extra knee available to, to steer while I'm driving 80 miles an hour down the highway and <laughs> right. lettuce is flying everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we, we are not the people to ask because we, we are bad about eating 
while we drive. We are. Yes, it's a bad habit for sure. In fact, finally, just this last road trip, I suggested to Matt that after we get our sandwiches in Subway, we could just sit in the car and not drive for five minutes while he eats so that he doesn't have to eat and drive at the same time. So that's typically what we do because we're just anxious to get to our destination. And like you pointed out, Jill, there's not a lot of great places to stop along the way, typically. We do bring camp chairs with us usually on every driving trip. And so if if we do have an opportunity, a lot of times it's in a park where we can uh, stop at a pull-off, take the chairs out, maybe find some shade. But that's also fairly rare. I mean, lunchtime, it's it's the middle of the day. You have to be right underneath a tree in order to get some shade. Absolutely, because we know, like you pointed out, it's almost impossible to find a picnic table that's in the shade. It seems like every single one we see is in full sun. But the other thing we always pack in our truck, and this this would be a great gift for people, is we have this um, Pendleton picnic blanket It folds up into a pretty small square. It has its own like little fabric case with handles. The bottom side is kind of waterproof. So it's a great little picnic blanket because it doesn't take up any room. And wherever we are, we can find a tree, throw it down, get out and uh, and have a snack, have our lunch, stretch our legs. We found those at Costco. They were pretty inexpensive, uh, mm-hmm. which also helps because if you use it often enough, it's it's going to get dirty and eventually it's going to uh, wear out. And so you don't feel bad. You feel like you can use it and not, not worry about uh, wearing it out. So, yeah, if you have some folding chairs and a picnic blanket, it does give you more options. But, you know, it depends where you're driving through, obviously, because if you're driving through the never-ending Salt Lake City corridor for two hours. The only place you're stopping is a gas station. But if you are driving through Nevada on some of those lonely, beautiful roads, there are places you could pull off, put out your uh, your camp chairs and, you know, sit and eat your sandwich. So, yeah, yeah it just kind of depends on where you are. Okay. What else we got? Okay, the third question in this little series of road trip questions comes from Leslie in Washington State, and she wrote, how do you like to spend all of the time you have in your vehicle as you travel along on your road trips? My husband and I just did a road trip to California, and we listened to two complete audiobooks in the car. Hmm. Do we really want to answer this question? It's like it's like Festivus in our car. There's the airing of grievances. There's no feats of strength. But actually, to be honest, um, I drive and then Karen, you put your sunglasses on and sleep, and you think that because you have sunglasses on, I don't know you're sleeping. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And then we get to our destination eight hours later, and you're wide awake, and I'm ready to go to bed. Mm-hmm. You have started to let me drive a little bit when you're practically comatose. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm ready to pass out so, <laughs> so I know I'll be asleep right, during right. the driving. Yeah, Leslie, I wish we could tell you that we listen to audiobooks or to very intellectual podcasts or something equally stimulating, but the truth is, we do not. <laughs> Typically, we both have playlists um, on our phone, you know, music that we like. And so we'll plug our phone cords in and run it through the car speakers and play. Um, we'll play our music a lot. Um, if it's a weekend in the fall, Matt listens to football games, or I guess basketball games too. And then we also we actually do talk a lot about 
about our business, so to speak. It's like a little work retreat. We all <laughs> we, we take turns putting things on the other person's to-do list. That's what we do. And when we get tired of doing that, then we turn the music on, then you put your sunglasses on, fall asleep. Sometimes I fall asleep, and then, yeah, then we repeat that. Right, right. So, Leslie, I'm sorry. I know that's probably a big disappointment. Sorry, it's just kind of suck. They do suck, yeah. But, you know, that's that's how it is. And for us, I don't know. Listening to podcasts kind of feels like work to me, like um, the whole podcast thing. We do not I, want to listen to another podcast. I know. It's a little too close to home. And then I am I feel like I'm critiquing them in my mind or like, oh, we should do that. Oh, they're so much better than we are or whatever. So we don't really listen to a lot of other podcasts. But yeah, it is great. The audiobooks are great. We would recommend yeah, it. Yeah, definitely do that. <laughs> Seriously. We're not going to do it, but you should. Yes. No, people should listen to audiobooks. I hear Dear Bob and Sue. Oh, yeah. Dear Bob and Sue's fantastic. One, two, and three. We, which are... we also have never listened to. <laughs> <laughs> I do think it's a great way to spend the time in the car. And um, yeah, podcasts and audiobooks. So good for you, Leslie. We're going to try We're gonna try to do better, aren't we, Matt? I guess. I guess that's what we're going to do now as we're as we're driving up through Canada, visiting all 47 national park areas. Mm -hmm. And as you eat your Subway sandwich on your lap, uh, driving with your knee, you mm -hmm. can listen to something intellectual. Yeah, maybe the Canadian podcasts. Exactly. We'll yeah. have to seek those out. So anyway, Leslie, thank you so much for your question. That's a great one. And as always, this has been so much fun. If you have a mailbag question for us, please email it to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who went to our gift guide on mattandkaren.com and used the links to purchase your holiday gifts. We really do appreciate that support. And remember that our Dear Bob and Sue series of books make wonderful holiday gifts. They're all available with just one click on Amazon. You could wrap them up with a national park ornament or maybe a passport book, and you'd have a great gift for all the park explorers on your list. We have some exciting new episodes coming out in December, including an itinerary for Southern Arizona that would make a perfect winter getaway. Sun, margaritas, national park service sites, and some other incredible public lands. What more could you ask for, Karen? Not a single thing, Matt. Not a thing. <laughs> Maybe some chips with those margaritas. <laughs> Maybe so. See you all next week. Mm -hmm.